everyone, and welcome to the Thorax Podcast, where we discuss new research and hot topics in respiratory medicine, essentially all things respiratory. My name is Pooja Mehta. I'm a digital social media editor for Thorax, and I'm also a rheumatology registrar undertaking a PhD in interstitial lung disease, ILD, at University College London, UCL Respiratory. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to be joined by Professor Ian Hall, Director of the Nottingham Biomedical Research Centre and the University of Nottingham. Today, we'll be discussing his paper entitled Respiratory Research in the UK, Investing for the Next 10 Years. And this was recently published in Thorax with co-authors Samantha Walker and Stephen Holgate. Professor Hall, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Let's get started. So please, could you give us an outline of your paper? What do you cover? What's the premise? So this is based upon the recommendations of the Office of Life Science report, which came out last year, which identified the fact that we need to prioritise research into respiratory medicine because of the large burden of disease that is present in the country. So as you probably know, about one in five people in the UK will suffer with some sort of lung disease at any given stage in their life. And the amount of investment that's gone into respiratory research, whilst it has increased over recent years, remains well behind the um, level of investment in some other disease areas. And if you try and match up the level of investment against the burden of disease, what you see is a, a disparity. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that. So we know that there is a, a pot of money that's finite. We don't have unlimited resources. And in an ideal world, all specialties would get a big chunk of money. So if we had an elevator pitch and you had to explain why respiratory research should be prioritised, how would you explain this? Bear in mind that you're talking to a rheumatologist, so be careful. <laughs> <laughs> so respiratory disease causes a huge unmet burden of symptoms, time off work, and actually kills people prematurely. And we have treatments which haven't changed massively over the last 30 years. There are some advances, but they're relatively limited. So we really need to do something to revolutionize the management of disease, both by preventing it developing in the first place and treating it better to reduce that massive burden. Thank you. And COVID really did bring respiratory disease to the fore. Go about leveraging more money. So, so you're absolutely right. So the lessons from the COVID pandemic, and of course, whilst people had many other problems other than respiratory disease, the, the primary issue was that they had a, a, a pneumonia-like illness. And, you know, what it taught us was that by working collaboratively together across the country, prioritising the research which needed to be done and identifying the resource to support that and making sure it then all went, proceeded in a timely way, we were able to do really great research. I mean, it's, it's remarkable to me that we went from an idea that dexamethasone might be useful in the treatment of COVID to actually having it in clinical use in a period of about six months. I mean, that is extraordinary progress. And so the real challenge is why can't we do that for, for other respiratory diseases where it takes often years to make even relatively minor advances? And so clearly what you need to be able to do to make that happen is you need to have the resource available so that there is a need to have the funding in there but you also need to get the collaborative working across different sites and whilst we do that there's still a lot of work to do i think 
I think COVID really did highlight the confederation of the willing, um, massive teams coming together, breaking down silos, working together to make progress fast. There were a lot of barriers in place before COVID that seemed to dissolve because of the need, the urgency. Do you think it's feasible to extrapolate that beyond COVID? Yeah, so I think that's a really important point. And as as I'm sure you know, that there have been a number of um, working parties have looked at this and probably the most recently relevant one of these would be the Goldacre Review looking at the use of um, data with the... So, so, so my reflection would be, and this is a personal view, that um, the, the advances that were made in access to data and uh, reduction in timelines over getting clinical trials up and running in the COVID period are gradually regressing back to what we had before. So I worry that we'll end up now moving back to a pre-2020 environment where getting really important research studies delivered in a timely way has becoming more rather than less difficult. I agree. I think the um, the revolutionary pace of the pandemic perhaps wasn't sustainable. And I also worry that we're going to move back to the mixodematous pace that we had before, and we're all going to get frustrated again. Looking back in terms of um, respiratory research and why it was so underfunded, as you, you point out at the beginning, why do you think that is, given that respiratory diseases are so common? Asthma, COPD, smoking-related illnesses – they're so common, yet they they were not prioritised. There wasn't really a spotlight. Why do you think that is? So I suppose if you go back to the early days of the Medical Research Council, they focused on tuberculosis, which was a big problem after the war. And at that stage, there was a highlight on them. But after sort of management of tuberculosis was sorted out, then respiratory disease really took a back seat. And I think that's due to probably a couple of things which are to do with perceptions about respiratory disease and something also to do about the way the respiratory research community has operated in the past. So to deal with the perceptions, first of all, there is a general feeling that most respiratory disease is caused by smoking. Obviously, some of it is, but not all of it. And that's a personal choice. And therefore, you know, you should stop smoking and respiratory disease will go away. Well, we know even for the, the best example of a smoking associated um, respiratory disease, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, that actually globally, less than 50% of cases are caused by smoking with sort of air pollution, particularly indoor air pollution in the developing world being a major, major factor. So I don't think that's a fair criticism, but there's still, a, you know, you talk to people outside of the respiratory field and they will tell you that. I think they, for whatever reason, respiratory disease has been deemed to be somewhat untrendy. And so we've lacked some of the champions that um, other disease areas have had. And I think the importance of the disease burden has just not been recognised. So I talk to many people, they say, asthma, well, you get a bit wheezy and you can take an inhaler and you'll be fine. People just don't realise that 1,500 people a year die of asthma in this country every year which is the same disease burden as you get from some of the forms of cancer, of course. I think the other bit around this, which is equally important and something we have to do as a community, is that siloed research in the past has been a bit of a problem, that groups have not collaborated as effectively as they could have done at a national or indeed international level. And I think things are now hugely better than they were perhaps 15 years ago, but we still need to foster that collaborative working so that we deliver the studies which really make a difference rather than the sort of small incremental studies which don't really move us along very far. 
Thank you. And I just want to take up that point that you brought up in terms of silos within intra-specialty working, so respiratory centres across the UK working together. What do you think about cross-specialty working, other specialties? Do you think that's something that we need to explore and do better in? Well, absolutely. So you'll know that the National Institute for Health Research has got a um, priority area on multimorbidity and long-term conditions. Respiratory disease rarely exists on its own. It's also a myth to think that many multi-system diseases which affect the lung, by just understanding the respiratory component of it, that you'll understand the whole of the disease process. So, I mean, you work in the area of rheumatology, so you'll know that many rheumatological conditions affect the lung. Many of them cause interstitial lung disease. But if you don't understand the mechanisms underlying the the actual inflammatory process leading to the rheumatological abnormalities, you won't understand the processes in the lung. And so if we don't work across specialties, then we're not going to get to that point. I guess that the, the other reflection I'd have on this, and this is a slightly more controversial point, but um, personally, I think feel very strongly it's true, is that Diseases tend to be described by the site in which they occur and by some of the symptoms associated with it, which are just a reflection of biological processes. But many of those biological processes and mechanisms actually occur in many other organs as well. And actually, the treatments that you use should be designed to target the mechanisms not just the disease process. So if you understand mechanisms and you can redefine disease by the mechanism underlying it, for example, in respiratory disease, I'm just you know picking an example at the top of my head, if you said TH2-driven high eosinophil disease, well, that's obviously produces problems in the lung, but it produces issues elsewhere as well. So the ways which you can target the process which leads to that high eosinophil type disease will be equally relevant for diseases outside the lung. So that redefining diseases away from the old traditional model might also help us get better at this. Thank you so much. And I'm delighted that you mentioned rheumatic-associated ILD, which is a subject very close to my heart. And I firmly uh, endorse that statement with cross-specialty research. And we do need to, to work together better. The, the aspect of redefining respiratory disease really caught my eye in your paper. And you talk about mechanisms. Is there anything else that we'd like to talk about there in terms of how we look at these diseases differently and classify them differently in order to approach them in a different way? Well, I think understanding the biological process is clearly critical. I mean, I work mostly myself in the area of genetics, and it's mm -hmm. very clear that we can start to develop the profile of the genetic variants, which are act as risk factors for different diseases. But it's very clear that there aren't just one set of genetic factors which predispose you to asthma and another set which predispose you to developing COPD. There are some which are shared, and they often focus upon processes such as inflammation in the airways, which results in reduced airway caliber and therefore reduced lung function. So um, I think that by reducing things to those mechanisms and processes that then enables us to think more carefully about therapeutic intervention. So something which is targeting airway inflammation in a patient with COPD isn't going to be much use if the primary problem in that patient is emphysema, for example, where you're looking more at peripheral lung destruction mechanisms. So I think until we really start to say, 
here's a mechanism, here's the way we can intervene. We won't define effective treatments. And because the downside of that is potentially you slice the pie up. So you end up with a disease and you, rather than having a treatment you can give to everybody with that disease, you've got these subphenotypes which may respond. But then we've seen from the severe asthma space, if you don't go down that route, you will potentially discard useful medications which are effective in a subgroup of patients. Absolutely. And I think subphenotyping is really key. You know, we talk about lumping and splitting and that seems to, to sometimes get some criticism, but that really is how we need to do it. We need to redefine respiratory disease in order to see which patient's going to respond to which treatment and which would be futile or potentially harmful. We've talked a lot about what the areas are to, to focus on. And the paper itself, I must say, is very inspirational as well as aspirational. And it's fantastic. It's a really nice read. But could we now perhaps move to the challenges? So what are the biggest challenges facing the UK plan for respiratory research and how can we overcome them? Yeah. So um, I, the, the paper outlines some tasks which uh, we can obviously address. But I think that the biggest challenge perhaps isn't sort of working out how we're going to generate the necessary cross-sectional data so we know how much disease there is or measuring sort of environmental stimuli which might provoke lung disease because some of that work is ongoing anyhow. And, you know, there's a resource issue, obviously, so there's a challenge in generating enough resource. One of the challenges which i perhaps ought to highlight here is the overarching coordination that's necessary to achieve this. So historically, the respiratory community in the UK perhaps has lacked a single voice. And we've seen how strong having that single voice can be in, in other disease areas, both to build the case for investment, but also to coordinate research activity. And whilst we obviously have made progress in that space, particularly over the last 10 years, and there are some really great initiatives like the, the TRC and respiratory, which NIHR supports, at least in England, which enables us to do trials across multiple centres. I think what we've lacked is the ability to take a step back and say, if we really want to change the respiratory research landscape and address the key issues, who are the key stakeholders? How can we get them together and get them to work together to make that happen? And you know, one of the key recommendations for me, which you know I've highlighted in this paper, is the need to have that central coordination because there is limited resource. We won't get all the funding that we would like to go into respiratory, so we have to use it as effectively as possible. That's such an interesting thought in terms of having a, a, a pioneer, a figurehead, somebody to um, think of if you have in your mind who is a respiratory KOL, and I hate that word, you know, key opinion leader or thought leader, but actually having those figures are important. We talk about collaboration, and uh, we've previously talked about cross-specialty collaboration, but what about the industry-academic interface? Because there's money there, and there's appetite. How do we foster those collaborations for bidirectional incentivization? So that's a really interesting question. I've worked quite extensively with industry over the years. And, and the first thing I'd say, there's a really important philosophical point here. Interaction and collaboration with industry works well where both sides are engaged. Too often in the past, clinical researchers have said, I've got a great idea, I'll just get industry to fund it, regardless of whether they're interested or not. Or equally, industry have come along and said, we really want you to look at this for us and just do the study and please get on with it. If there isn't a mutual interest, it's doomed to failure. 
So the industry collaborations I have had, which have been far and away the most successful, is where there's a shared common goal. So we both invested in the outcome. And of course, academia has lots to learn from the way that industry operates, particularly in terms of its more target, milestone-centered approach in terms of delivering things in an efficient way. So I think, first of all, the philosophy has to be right. Uh, The second thing I'd say is that historically, the UK industry base, both in terms of large pharma, but also particularly in the SME sector, has been pretty much world leading. But what's happened over the last 10 years due to a number of factors is that many of the large farmers which were involved in respiratory research have relocated out of the UK. So if you think about you know, the amount of uh, investment that comes into the UK now from some of the large farmers, many of which have relocated to the east coast of the states, there's a real issue there because much as we would, can still collaborate, particularly in a sort of a virtual world with people across time zones and across countries, it's still natural often to go to the people who are closest to you. So that's a real challenge for us. So I think we have to make sure that we work effectively with the large farmer, but also the SMEs that are present in the UK to help deliver things You know, where, where there is mutual interest to do so. And having them involved in defining our research strategy, therefore, makes absolute sense to me. Do you think that other people, in terms of the vast majority of respiratory research in the UK, share your vision about the industry-academic interface? Or is there a different perception of industry or physicians, clinicians, researchers that interact with industry? So there's often uh, aphorisms given to the dark side and there's a question about integrity or incentive and motivations from the industry partners with respect to commercial viability and direction of travel being for business reasons rather than unmet need. Am I overthinking this or do you think that actually there is a perception that we need to try and dissolve? I think there's a perception, as you have stated, and some people in the respiratory community would share that perception. I think you could equally well turn around and if we try to focus on the clinical research community in academia and ask what are the things that we don't like about that, there will be equally sort of damaging things that you could say about siloed thinking, not wanting to share resources or, 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 or you know, data uh, in, a, in a useful way. It's all about being driven by sort of individual groups profile rather than the, the, the national needs. So there are equally on the academic side things which are which which are bad i think we have to move beyond those things and you see this happening now there are some you know in the respiratory space but in other specialties as well we see people who actually transition from academia into industry and back into academia so i think there's a much more open interface there now clearly industry has to achieve its goals which at the end of the day is to make money for shareholders Academia has to achieve its goals, which is largely driven in the research space by making sure you have the outputs for REF, for example, and they're different goals. But at the end of the day, if we work effectively together, taking you know into account the different drivers that exist, then I think that there's huge opportunities for us to do more at that interface. 
Thank you so much. I think that was beautifully described in terms of the the potential biases on both sides that we need to recognise. And yet we also should be able to align both of our goals in terms of industry time to make a drug that is marketable and clinical researchers or researchers trying to evaluate a drug that works for patients that will give them the metrics of success, publications, grants and so on, because ultimately we're all trying to improve care for patients. And, and, you know, I go back to the driver for this article, which was the Office for Life Science report. So, you know, part of this is about making the UK a place where industry wants to do research. That brings economic benefit to the country. So it's about wealth creation. But actually, if the default position is that we don't encourage interactions with the industry, large pharma and other companies leave the UK, particularly in a post-Brexit era, this is obviously a huge potential issue, then we will lack then the ability to access the resources that industry do have to support research in the academic environment. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot effectively if we're not engaging with this. Thank you. So we've talked about COVIDification of research and hopefully bringing that back to uh, the primary respiratory diseases that we look after and opportunities and challenges. And I just want to bring out something that um, I quite was uh, interested in with respect to your paper that that spoke to me was the training aspect, given that I'm a trainee, uh, and about recruitment and retention of trainees and trying to inspire trainees to do research. I was hoping that you might be able to speak a little bit about that. Absolutely. So We have a potential problem in respiratory and indeed in other specialties, but particularly in respiratory, in encouraging people into academic, clinical academic, but actually in allied professions as well, people taking up those positions. If you look at the existing respiratory academic community, um, I won't say it's ageing because we always think that the older people are irreplaceable, which they clearly aren't, of course. But we do seem to have stagnation in terms of the numbers coming through and some slightly worrying trends that less people are perhaps expressing an interest in a in an acad- clinical academic career rather than in a, a straight uh, a clinical service uh, career. So I worry about capacity. So the uh, and obviously that cadre of people will be the people who are going to drive things forward in the in the future so the key issue is what can we do about that and um you know i have some personal views on this which are not necessarily the views which are expressed in this article but that and go because they go a bit further than that but i think our training systems in general are far too constrained and they're driven by unnecessary requirements and, and, and the consequence of that is if you're trying to do two things, that is become a successful clinical research, but at the same time maintain some clinical competency, you're, you're effectively trying to achieve two different sets of goals. And that makes it very difficult, I think, for trainees to um, find a way through that, particularly if you want to take into account, as obviously we should do, all the issues to do with people being at earlier stages in their careers, having to manage maternity or paternity leave, part-time working, all these things. So what I would argue for is a, a simplification of the training requirements in order to become a clinical academic to facilitate people who are thinking about making that move, moving into that career track. Thank you. I would wholeheartedly encourage that too. And it's it's just fascinating from my perspective as a rheumatology trainee, because there's sometimes a, a discussion that occurs about 
almost an overemphasis on academic outputs in, in rheumatology and people going into academia for the wrong reasons. You know, in order to get a clinical job, you need to do a PhD to get a, a job in a tertiary centre. So it, it's the flip side is also interesting when you go into two extremes, we're hopefully trying to achieve a balance. And I think absolutely all of the points that you lay out in your paper with respect to encouraging respiratory trainees to do research is, is so important. And again, taking a step back, I think it's absolutely inspirational and refreshing that the president of the British Society for, or the British Thoracic Society, is an allied healthcare professional. Absolutely amazing, very inspirational for all specialties to follow that template. So just as we wrap up, how would you summarise your paper into an elevator pitch in terms of what are the key priorities for respiratory research and is it feasible? Can we deliver the OLS vision? The key priority is to make sure that we achieve as many of these goals as possible. First of all, to work together as a collaborative community. We do need to make the case for additional resource, but that resource has to be um, predicated upon the most effective use of that resource in a collaborative way. And I do think there's still work to do, particularly in the data space. And, you know, there's, there's, that's not just specific respiratory, but it's, enable, it, you know, it's enabling us to be able to access data in a useful way to, to undertake our research. That's really a, a, an important area. So can we achieve it? So we're not going to suddenly get the money tree isn't going to produce huge fruits in the immediate future by the way things are going at the moment. So uh, some of this is going to be about encouraging investment and there are good reasons for doing that in the respiratory space. But equally, well, it's going to be a tough financial environment. I think we all know that for the next two or three years at least. Um, the collaborative working bit. So there already is work to try and bring this together. So Asthma and Lung UK, which is the largest of the, the respiratory charities, of course, has really tried to grasp the metal here and has very recently put together a sort of oversight group to try and take forward some of these issues. They've had their own separate discussions with uh, with government and there is a willingness within the community to engage with that. And I was delighted that the British Thoracic Society are engaged with that as well, because what we mustn't do to deliver on this is to start working in these silos where individual organisation or individual academic priorities take precedence. Thank you so much. And let's just endorse that. Let's say no to silos. It's been so lovely talking to you. And uh, thank you all for listening to the Thorax podcast. My name is Pooja Mehta. As I said, I'm the social media editor for Thorax, and we will be publishing regular podcasts about some of the best content to the latest issue of Thorax. Please do subscribe on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to get it directly onto your device each month. We'd also really like to hear from you, so please do get in touch through our social media channels on Twitter, for example, or leave us a review on the Thorax podcast page on iTunes. Thanks for listening and see you again next month. Thank you.